Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett, and today we're joined by Dr. Robert Lustig. Um, he's very kindly agreed to come on the podcast all the way from San Francisco. He is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He's an endocrinologist, but he's specifically interested in the regulation of energy balance. And today we're going to be talking a lot about his new books, Metabolical, and his older book, Fat Chance. Um, I'm so excited to have him. You have no idea. He's fostering a global discussion about the um, effect of on metabolic health and specifically how food is actually medicine. And he's exposing some of the benefits and also some of the myths. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. So thank you, Rob, for joining us. And would you like to tell the audience a little bit about your background and your interests and how you got to write these books, for example? Well, first of all, thank you, Selena. You know, uh, for your audience, you know, Selena and I have known each other for quite a few years. She did a postdoc here at UCSF way back in the uh, in the day, you know, when uh, I was much less gray. Um, but uh, uh, bottom line is, I am a pediatric endocrinologist, which means I study hormones in children. And in particular, I'm a neuroendocrinologist, which means I study how the brain controls hormones and how hormones control the brain. I've always been interested in how hormones control behavior. And obesity was sort of the final frontier uh, in this issue of hormones controlling the brain. Because in 1994, we discovered a hormone called leptin. And leptin is a hormone that your fat cells make that goes to your brain and tells your brain, you know what? I got enough energy on board so I can burn energy at a normal rate, feel good, and not eat too much. Um, it's like the servo mechanism on your house, you know, in terms of your thermostat. And when leptin was discovered, I happened to be at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, the pediatric cancer hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And I was charged with taking care of at least 40, maybe more, obese kids who had brain tumors had survived their surgery or their radiation and had become massively obese because of the therapy. And I had to do something for them. And it was then that I basically got into obesity. Up to that point, I had been studying sexual differentiation of the brain why boys are boys and girls are girls, you know, from the neck up. But, um, you know, obesity was a big deal back in 1995, and it's a way bigger deal now. And um, so I kind of shifted gears and, you know, taught myself uh, obesity. And what I came to realize was it's not about obesity. It never was. Obesity is a straw man. Obesity is... Uh, a myth. Not that people aren't obese, they are. But the question is why? And people will say, well, they eat too much, they exercise too little. Well, that's true. But why? Why do they eat too much? Why do they exercise too little? And why has everything gone to hell in a handbasket over the last 40 years since 1980? You know, they say, well, you know, it's the food. Well, you know, the food was there before, but we didn't have this problem before. And so I've been spent, I've spent the last uh, 25 years or so, you know, piecing together the biochemistry and the neuroendocrinology of what actually happens in the brain that has led to this pandemic of not just obesity, but type 2 diabetes. Uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, all of these diseases are the diseases of insulin resistance, therefore endocrine. All of these diseases are the diseases of mitochondria because of mitochondrial dysfunction. And all of these diseases are now the diseases of children where they weren't before. And so that's what I've devoted my career to. And as I've learned more and more, I've come to the realization that there's nobody on this planet 
who's obese, who's a perpetrator. They're all victims. And the question is victims of whom? And that's what metabolical is about. Victims of whom? Because it's not what you eat. It's what's in the food, what they've put in the food, how they've changed the food. Because all food is inherently good. It's what they did to the food that's not. And so basically I name names and I talk about what the food industry actually has done to our food supply in terms of contamination. And that's what metabolical is about. And um, so uh, Rob, before we step into your really recent book, Metabolical, can we just go back one step to your Fat Chance book? Um, and if that's okay, because Absolutely. I'm interested to know how that first book was received compared to your second book and how many, what's the difference in the fight between those <laughs> two? Um, because sure. I understand I understand what gets airplay and what doesn't and, and the reasons for that. So I'm interested in that side of things because you get so, I think diet and food, food is medicine, as you mentioned a lot in your work, well, how it goes into food, all parts of your body. Food can be medicine. Food can also be poison. And that's the key is, you know, there's this whole food is medicine um, uh, movement. Uh, just yesterday, the New York City uh, uh, Food Policy Institute issued a 255-page tome on food as medicine. Um, you can find it online, New York City Policy, uh, Food Policy Institute. And I read through it, you know, cursorily because it just came out yesterday. But the bottom line is they missed the point because, yes, food can be medicine, I totally agree. But in fact, what we've done to food has actually made it poison. And that's one of the questions that we can explore today is how did food become poison? Mm -hmm. I'd like to do that because this is the bit that people seem to miss when, when you have, when you're out on the stage giving presentations or people asking you questions because they have their own version of different things around food. Can we just, let's, let's just go straight to that point shall we and what was your crystallization moment like each of us have our own but what was your do you remember the day when all of a sudden <laughs> the light bulb yeah. kind of went off because you've been working in these spaces in different ways sometimes right. it takes someone from the outside coming in to see it diff a different light on right. it shine a different light on it right so um i've had three aha moments in my career and um they came in chronological order and I'll, you know, and, and it's a good thing they did because, you know, it, it sort of revealed itself uh, on, on the way. So the first aha moment came back in 1995, like when I, I, I was talking about these kids with brain tumors and I was at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, taking care of all these kids who become massively obese due to their brain tumor, either due to the, the tumor itself or the surgery or the radiation. And the parents would say, you know, this is double jeopardy. You know, my kid has survived the tumor only to succumb to a therapy. And the kids were like, you know, like uh, lumps on a log. You know, there was nothing in life that interested them. They refused to move. It was just that you know, stark. How old were they? These Sorry? Kids, how old were these kids you were? Oh, at ages, you know, two years old to 19 years old. Wow. All Amazing. different ages. Yeah. And um, what, you know, and, and I was charged with taking care of them. Now, we have known about a syndrome in medicine, in pediatrics in particular, since 1901. And it's called hypothalamic obesity. Uh, Freelich and Babinski described this back in 1901 and, you know, due to brain tumors. And these um, patients would be normal weight before the tumor and then would become 400 pounds if, if they survived. And we had an animal model of this where you would lesion, you put an electrode in the brain, in the hypothalamus, in the ventromedial hypothalamus, a specific part of the hypothalamus, and you would buzz, you would you basically you know, fry that area. 
And so that area would be dead. And these animals would then get massively obese. And so it was interpreted as, a, as a damaging a satiety center. Turns out that's not true. There was no satiety center. But when you lesion that area, what happened is these animals became massively obese because their pancreases started releasing enormous amounts of the hormone insulin. There's a connection between the hypothalamus and the pancreas through the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus that causes the massive release of insulin. Now, insulin is the energy storage hormone. Diabetics take insulin to lower their blood glucose, but that's because the blood glucose goes from their blood into their fat cells for storage. That's insulin's job. And these kids made enormous amounts of insulin. Even when they weren't eating anything, they were making enormous amounts of insulin. Wow. So clearly they had a problem with seeing their leptin and because they couldn't see their leptin, their brains thought they were starving. And so their brains would basically send this message down to the pancreas, release more insulin to make more fat because we're starving. So how am I gonna fix that? So I knew about this drug that's an endocrine drug called octreotide. Octreotide is a medicine that suppresses both growth hormone so we can treat acromegaly or gigantism, but it also su suppresses insulin. So I said, why don't we repurpose this drug to treat these patients with hypothalamic obesity? And I did. And lo and behold, patients started losing weight and they stopped eating so much, but something even more remarkable. They started exercising spontaneously. One kid became a competitive swimmer. Two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. You know, these were kids who did nothing. And they would say things like, this is the first time my head hasn't been in the clouds since the tumor. And the parents would say, I got my kid back. This was really remarkable. We did the double blind placebo control trial and the same thing happened. And we actually showed that the improvement in quality of life correlated with the reduction in the insulin response. The more we got the insulin down, the better they felt and the more weight they lost. So this proved to me that obesity was not about behavior. This proved that obesity was about biochemistry, that the biochemistry drives the behavior. And as a neuroendocrinologist, I know that, you know, estrogen drives behavior, androgen drives behavior, glucocorticoids drive behavior, you know, lots of, you know, hormones drive behavior. Well, it turns out leptin and insulin drive behavior too. So I wrote Fat Chance with the notion of explaining to obese people, it's not their fault, that this is a biochemical dysfunction that they are not perpetrators, but rather victims. So that was aha number one. Aha number two came in 2007. So I was asked by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, so the NIH, but the toxicology branch, they're in North Carolina. Um, I was asked to come to a meeting to celebrate 100 years of public health. And the first day was all about their successes, like, for instance, lead poisoning and pollution and asthma. And the second day was about new challenges, like obesity and metabolic syndrome and ADD and autism. So I was in the obesity section, and they asked me, what do you think is the most likely environmental cause of obesity? Or, or metabolic syndrome. And I'm sure they thought I was going to come up with, you know, some obesogen, by the way, we just published a paper on obesogens in biochemical pharmacology, explaining exactly how this works and that this is biochemical. Um, I'm very excited about it. 48 pages, 44 scientists from around the world, including Australia. Um, anyway, uh, uh, so, I, you know, they probably thought I was going to talk about BPA or phthalates or one of these, you know, uh, 
chemicals in the, in, in the water or in the, in the plastics or whatever. And I thought, yeah, that's not right. That's not what I'm going to talk about. I said, okay, let me, let me rethink this. I'm a pediatrician. What diseases do children get that they never got before? And there were two, type two diabetes and fatty liver disease. These were the diseases of aging, but more importantly, both of these diseases were the diseases of alcohol, but kids don't drink alcohol. So I said, kids don't drink alcohol, but they get the diseases of alcohol. What's like alcohol? So I opened up my biochemistry text from 1974, and I looked up alcohol, and right on the next page was fructose, the sweet molecule of sugar. And I compared the two, and I looked, and I said, wait a second, they're the same. They're handled virtually identically. The big difference between the two was that for alcohol, the yeast does the first step of metabolism called glycolysis. For fructose, we do our own first step. But after that, what the mitochondria see is exactly the same. They see acetyl-CoA. And it doesn't matter if it came from alcohol. It doesn't matter if it came from uh, fructose. Ultimately, neither one's insulin regulated and they both end up causing mitochondrial dysfunction. So I went to this meeting in um, North Carolina and I said, I think this is the problem and here's why. And this is why everyone's getting sick and why we type two diabetes is going through the roof and why children now get this. And they applauded and then was the bathroom break. And I'm standing at the podium and talking to people and like nobody's coming back. Nobody's coming back into the room, you know, for the next session. I had to use the bathroom. So I went out and I went to the bathroom and they tackled me in the friggin' bathroom. They wouldn't let me leave. They, they're screaming at me. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. You've got, this is, this is exactly what's happening. You have to go tell the world about this. Whoa toxicologists that were like crazed, crazed toxicologists. Because <laughs> they said, oh my God, fructose is a toxin. That was an aha number two. And what, what year was this again, Rob? That was 2007. Yeah, that's when I met you just after that. Just after that, yeah. And then the last aha wasn't even my aha. It's actually my colleagues at UCSF. Um, Laura Schmidt, uh, Kristen Carnes, and Stan Glantz, because they discovered the treasure trove of industry documents from the sugar industry, from the food industry, that demonstrated that they had been engaged in a 40-year subversion of data, of information, and of research, specifically to deep six the problems they knew about their product and that they had actually been the cause of our belief that saturated fat was the bad guy in heart disease, not sugar. And we had all the, they had all the data and was able to piece together the entire paper trail of how this actually happened and who was involved. And then that made me realize that this was a put up job that this was not just by accident, that this was in fact disinformation of the kind of sort that we see today and you know, propaganda. And so that was the third aha. And that's the reason I had to write this book, Metabolical, because you know it had to be called out. And people have been trying to call it out in other ways, haven't they, in different forms, but it doesn't get very far in some sense. And people are not really sure why this is. I, mean, I, I can't understand it. There's a lot of you know, money made. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, people ask me all the time, Selena, you know, like, who, who are your detractors? You know, who's making trouble for you? And I, I've come up with a pat answer, so I'll give it to you. Okay, I call them the four Ds. Okay, the dinosaurs, 
the people who can't learn anything new, you know, what they learned 50 years ago, that's still true today, no matter what. Okay, the, the deniers, the people who can't possibly fathom, you know, an explanation, this pat. The dilettantes, you know, the people who are actually paid off, you know, to, you know, basically do the, do the industry's bidding. And finally, the drug addicts, people who basically say, you can't take away my sugar. It's the only thing that's basically keeping me from committing suicide. Yes. <laughs> so those are the four detractors. And so there's a lot of them. So, I mean, everything's like this, isn't it? Smoking was the same in the 80s. Yes. It, this, is, this is tobacco all over again. No difference. Um, same playbook, same uh, uh, subterfuge, same lying to, you know, to the public and to Congress, same, same thing. So in terms of your book, do you want to just uh, say exactly the, what we talked about being like a quick summary for people listening as to yeah, what the so, take-home message would be? Right. So, you know, when I wrote my first book, Fat Chance, you know, the standard mantra, you know, and cont continues to be the standard mantra, you know, from all the, uh, the, the ivory tower people is you are what you eat. And I knew that was not true. And I knew that way back in the 90s. And I knew that actually in college, I took nutritional biochemistry. I majored in nutritional biochemistry at MIT. And I knew it then. And then I went to med school and they beat it out of me. And they told me, ah, you know, we don't, we don't worry about any of that stuff. It's, it's all calories. Um, so I knew that you, you are what you eat was wrong. And so I wrote Fat Chance to say, you are what you do with what you eat. That metabolism is more important than calories. And that that's why um, uh, obese people were victims, not perpetrators. But when I learned about the dark underbelly and the, uh, the politicking and the, uh, the disinformation and the propaganda, you know, I realized that I actually got it wrong back in 2013 with the first book. So Metabolical corrects that because really the mantra is you are what they did with what you eat. It's the food processing that is the problem because all food is inherently good. And it doesn't matter if it's high carb, low carb, high fat, low fat, none of that matters as long as it's real food. As soon as they process it, that's when the problem comes. Can we just now, talk about that, um, Rob, a little bit? Because people like uh, may not understand what you mean by process versus whole food. There's so many arguments about, about low carb, high carb, intermittent fasting, um, veganism, vegetarianism. You know, can we absolutely. just talk a little bit about what you mean by a processed food? Yes, absolutely. And, and th that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is because people don't understand this. So the easiest way to understand processing is to take an apple. Okay, let's take an apple. All right. Class one processing is an apple. Class two processing is apple slices in a bag. Class three processing is the applesauce. Class four processing is an apple pie. All right, that's the way to think about it. Now, it turns out um, my colleague, Dr. Carlos Montero, who's a professor of public health at uh, the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, he and his colleagues have put together a food classification system, which I think works very well, called the NOVA system. And they divide different foods into these four classes. And when you look at large databases of food consumption around the world, UK, rest of Europe, South America, United States, Asia, turns out classes one, two, and three are not the problem. They don't really cause much disease. It's all class four. But boy, oh boy, does class four cause disease. It's all the ultra processed food that causes the problem. The rest of the diet, not so bad. 
you know, it, it, you can pretty much eat anything that uh, that came out of the ground or, or an animal that ate what came out of the ground. It's only when the food industry actually did something to the food, either in terms of adding other ingredients, the most common of which is sugar, or stripping it of its fiber, or starting to add things like emulsifiers, you know, to keep the fat and the water together, or various other food additives, okay, that you actually alter the um, uh, metabolic profile of that food and ultimately turn it from food into poison. And we have how that happens and what the mechanism is. In virtually every case, it's either because of an, the insulin response, the excess insulin response, or because of mitochondrial dysfunction, because it affects the mitochondria in a negative fashion and inhibits burning appropriately. And we can talk about how, for instance, fructose does that, or yeah. how the lack of fiber does that. And um, this processing would be even something like, say, chicken breast in a in a oh, tray. Absolutely. Let's sure. talk about that simple one because that's really that's people think that's healthy. So we people tend to choose right. that in Australia, particularly, I, I, also in America, actually, because it's right. an easy way of serving a family. Um, you know, I did it myself back in the day, <laughs> um, thinking I was doing something healthy. I did this on many actual types of foods because I was well, naive to any of this. So. Do you want, let's just talk about that one little fact about let's just take a chicken breast, which we think we're doing something healthy. It's in a plastic tray. It looks really good compared to, say, something right. even more processed. Let's talk about that one item, for example. Sure. So let's talk about chicken breast. Happy to do so. So number one, what was the chicken raised on? What did the chicken eat? What does a chicken normally eat? pasture-raised chicken, a free-range chicken, what does it normally eat? Eats not much. I mean, seeds and what have you. Okay. But what does a factory-raised chicken get raised on? Corn. Corn turns out to be not a, um, a food staple for any species. Okay, that's not a natural diet staple for any species except maybe, you know, louses and boll weevils and things like that. Okay, no animal eats corn routinely. Cows eat corn in concentrated animal feeding operations. Chickens eat corn in concentrated animal feeding operations. Corn is high energy, no question about that, it's energy dense. Okay, but it's also got lots of branched-chain amino acids. It's much higher in branched-chain amino acids than virtually any other food. Now, branched-chain amino acids, there are three of them, leucine, isoleucine, and valine. These are the amino acids that are 20% of muscle. And so um, athletes, you know, bodybuilders who are trying to build muscle, you know, by pumping iron, they will take scoops of protein powder and stick it in their, you know, uh, uh, Vitamix and make smoothies, you know, out of that to bulk up. And, you know, if you're building muscle, that's fine. You know, that's, you need them. They're essential amino acids. You can't make them. You got to eat them. Okay. And if you're building muscle, then okay, fine. But what if you're not building muscle? What if you're a mere mortal like me, you know, and you're eating all these excess branch chain amino acids, either because you're eating protein powder or because you're eating a chicken breast. Turns out those excess branch chain amino acids go to the liver. The liver takes the amino group off, deamidates it called. Now you've got an organic acid. The organic acid enters the Krebs cycle, the tricarboxylic acid cycle, the energy producing cycle in the mitochondria, overwhelms the mitochondria, which can't handle the load. And the excess gets thrown off and gets turned into fat in the liver. And that's one of the primary drivers of this fatty liver disease. And that fatty liver disease means the liver is now sick, doesn't work right. Pancreas has to make insulin to make the liver do its job. 
Now you have excess insulin all over the body. And just like those kids driving energy into fat cells and gaining weight and making you sick. So if the animal was free range and not fed corn, that's much better, but that's not, but, but that's that animal, that, that chicken breast is very expensive. The cheap chicken breast that's in processed food is, you know, the former. Yeah. So that's one problem of chicken breast. Yeah, that's just one Next example problem. of food, right? Next problem of chicken breast. They sell it by the pound. So what do they do? They soak the chicken breast in a solution of salt and water. Uh, sorry, not so salt and sugar. Sorry, salt and sugar. I'm solution salt and sugar in order to like brine it into, and it will take up extra water. And so it will swell the chicken breast to make the chicken breast heavier, which then commands a higher price at the cash register. Now that excess salt, you don't need, and it can cause hypertension on its own. But in addition, we now know that from the work of Rick Johnson, who's the head of uh, uh, nephrology at University of Colorado, that that excess salt actually activates the polyol pathway, which turns glucose into fructose. And therefore you end up making more uh, liver fat as well. And in addition, fructose activates vasopress, uh, the vasopressin 1B receptor, which ultimately causes water retention and therefore makes the hypertension even worse. So the combination of the salt and the sugar in the brine that they put the processed chicken breast in is going to increase risk for disease. And I, um, Robert, uh, Rob, I just want to say too that in Australia terms, there was a lot of, I don't know, I know America too, there's a lot of marketing around how chicken was better for you than red meat for a long time. I don't know yeah. if you remember that. Um, I do. It's still a little bit in the. Right. It's, oh, absolutely. It's out, out in the literature and, you know, and I'm, and I wrote Metabolical to debunk that. The fact of the matter is um, uh, red meat. I'm not telling you red meat's good for you. The question is, is red meat bad for you? That's the question. People say red meat is bad because of the saturated fat. And therefore chicken is better because it doesn't have as much saturated fat. Garbage, complete utter trash. Now it is true that red meat has a hazard risk ratio for heart disease and diabetes of 1.25, 1.25. So 25% increased risk for diabetes and heart disease. That's true, but it's not because of the saturated fat. Rather, it's because of the iron, which is an oxidative stress. It's because of the branched chain amino acids, which chicken has too. And it's because of the choline. Choline is a compound that gets turned into acetylcholine in the brain or phosphatidylcholine in the liver necessary for lipid transport around the body. So you need choline, but if you take excess choline, then the bacteria in your intestine turn the choline into a compound called uh, triethylamine or t t uh, trimethylamine, uh, TMA, which then goes to the liver and gets oxidized to TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, which is the stickiest substance the body makes. Right. And so it lines your arteries and your, um, and your, your uh, liver and causes metabolic disease all by itself. This is the work of Stanley Hazen at the Cleveland Clinic. Bottom line, if you factor out the saturated fat, number one, red meat is like every other protein source, no worse. And chicken is just like red meat. So if you think you're getting away with something, you're not. Right. Yeah. So this whole red meat chicken thing is really actually a, 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 uh, an exercise in futility. 
And then that brings us to also veganism and vegetarianism. Um, right. There's lots well, of climate change reasons that people are choosing that, but then, but also perfect. to become vegan, you've got to have a lot of carbohydrates. That's right. So and a lot of processed food, actually. That's right. Well, it does. It doesn't have to be that way, but that's what it tends to be in general, you know, because of the way it's marketed. So let me start out by saying, Selena, I am not anti-vegan. I'm not pro-vegan either, mind you, but I'm not anti-vegan. If, if people want to be vegan, let, you know, that's fine. Let them be vegan, okay? If people want to be keto, let them be keto. If people want to be carnivore, let them be carnivore. I have no bone to pick with any specific diet. All diets work as long as they're not processed food. As long as they're not processed food. The problem is that vegan diets often are processed food. Coke, Doritos, and Oreos are all vegan. Yes. <laughs> okay. So it's really easy to do a vegan diet wrong. Okay. Yeah. Virtually any food you buy at the store that's vegan is processed because they had to get something out of it and put something in it that ultimately made it processed. Yeah. To, to, to make it non-animal uh, uh, related. So um, if you really want to do vegan and you're you know, staying away from processed food, hey, have at it. But if you think that you are healthier than the person who's practicing keto, I got a bridge to sell you, okay? Now, there are lots of reasons to be vegan. Religion, climate change, cost, you know, and all those are perfectly fine. But metabolic health is not one of them. Metabolic health it can be just as bad if you do vegan wrong as if you basically do keto wrong. And it's easy to do keto wrong because it's really hard to stay on a ketogenic diet. And it's really easy to do vegan wrong. And so I think the ketos and the vegans actually ought to team up together because their common enemy is processed food. So I think the take home from metabolical so far, from what I'm hearing you say is for, for the audience is to become aware of how much processed food that they're actually consuming. Cause you may not be aware of it because you may think a chicken breast seems so like the healthiest, like it seems close to where the source is, doesn't it? That's right. And that's just is, one example, for example. That's just one example. Um, you know, we, and we can, we can run the gamut and the litany, you know, all the way down, you know, French fries, you know, French fries are carbohydrate and they're fat, both, right? But they're also something else because when you fry carbohydrate in a very hot oil, you make acrylamide and acrylamide is actually carcinogenic. So sometimes it's not the food, it's how the food is cooked. And that's true for that chicken breast too. Because if you paint barbecue sauce on the chicken breast and then put it on the grill, you're making aryl hydrocarbons. It also might be carcinogenic. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that we not just, you know, eat, but, you know, how we prepare it that make a difference. And so I have a whole section in the book about what we, what we do to the food, never mind what they did to the food, that ultimately makes it, you know, turns it from food into poison as well. So people often get really concerned and worried and depressed about all of this. And so I, I say it's life choices and we're just sharing knowledge and people say, so what should I eat? You know, how do, how do I know what to eat and how to prepare it to make, and especially if you're trying to cook for a big family and you're working and all these kind of things. So, that's right. Maybe I'd like to get your opinion on that. I have one too, but of course, what you, so, I'm sure everyone asks you this. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. So what should I eat doc? You know that, I mean, yes, I, I totally get it. And, you know, it's one thing to basically say, you know, complain about the problem, but you know, you can't, you, you, if, if you're going to complain about a problem, you better have a solution. Okay. The problem is that they, the food industry has actually made the solution relatively hard. And that's what I'm trying to fix. I'm trying to ultimately provide a pathway forward for the food industry to be able to make money doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. 
And so we're actually working right now with a processed food company in Kuwait, the Kuwaiti Danish Dairy Company, KDD, on re-engineering their entire portfolio. All 176 items. And we're not just substituting, we are completely re-engineering it to be healthy, to actually confer health instead of metabolic illness. And there are ways to do it. And there are ways, you know, things that can be deleted. There are things that can, you know, that don't have to be added to the food. And there are also ways to get rid of the sugar and still maintain very good taste. And that is what we, that's the project that we are engaging in right now. Um, Danone and Unilever, those two big mega conglomerates have undertaken their own sugar reduction uh, uh, strategy for each of those two companies. And they were able to remove 14% of the added sugar from their portfolio. Fantastic. Now, 14%, good or bad? Well, it's a start is what I'd say. Better than not. Yeah. But uh, people really, have no idea how, how much they're... Right. We haven't even talked about sugar or fructose here, but they're the two... That's really embedded in so even bread, and especially in we America. Can, right. We consume quadruple our upper limit. So if we're consuming four times what we can, do you think a 14% reduction is going to get us very far? So no, we've gone from 14 from four times as much to three times as much. You think it's going to make much of a difference? Not really. So the only thing I can think of is that the companies see the smoking industry and know what happened to it eventually. That's, That's right. what I see. They, I mean, they're always forward thinking around lawsuits and class action suits. That's what I imagine. And this is huge. I mean, chronic oh. illness is. <laughs> they see the lawsuits coming. Yeah. And I will be very honest with you. I'm helping with some of them. Yeah. Okay. To, because, because of this problem, because they should make money doing the right thing, not the wrong thing. Uh, bottom line, we have identified 78% of the added sugar in KDD's portfolio that can be removed. That's a big difference from 14%. Yeah. Okay. And in the process, we will actually make their food healthy. And in doing so, we're hoping to be able to mitigate the rampant metabolic disease, the type two diabetes, the fatty liver disease, the well, Alzheimer's disease yeah. throughout the Middle East. Yes, it's massive, isn't it? Like a big, big, it's a big burden it on is. their health system and everything. Uh, uh, yeah, just a, um, it's amazing to think that food can do this to you. You just don't realize it when you're in it oh, at all. When food is poison. Absolutely. Um, can you, what do you think, uh, and what have you out there in the public health spaces now? It's quite different to being in the lab, isn't it? And being contained in circles of academia, it's quite different being in the public health uh, and oh. in science communication. So yeah. what have you come to see uh, actually after writing these books, being in more public spaces, being on a lot of podcasts is the most important issue facing people right now? So that's a really good question. What is the single biggest problem that we have as a society. And I'm sure you're going to tell me it's food. Okay, well, food is definitely up there. But actually, uh, personally, I think our biggest problem right now is truth. Yes. And the problem of food is, you know, a subset of the problem of truth. Ultimately, we have lost our way. We have, because, because we have basically gotten rid of the science, we have uh, um, forgotten what science is. Before this podcast started, you were telling me about individuals that, you know, claimed that, well, their father ate, you know, 10 ice cream sundaes a day and were just fine. You know, yeah, ends of one are not science. And the fact that these people were claiming that, you know, demonstrates how little, you know, respect they have for the, you know, concept of science. 
And the fact they're trying we, to write the the first sentence they say is I hate to debunk your science. That's how right. they lead the question, for example. Right. So it's like science is the enemy in some sense. And indeed. Yeah. Indeed. They they see science as the enemy because it doesn't fit their worldview, it doesn't fit their belief system. And so this, I think, is the biggest problem, is where did this come from? Who's propagating it? Who's promulgating it? Who's behind it? And how do we ultimately fix that? Because when we fix that, then we'll be able to fix climate change, and we'll be able to fix the food industry, and we'll be able to fix you know, virtually all of the things that ail us. Now, there will be people out there who say, oh, come on, science doesn't get it right either. Look how many things have been overturned. Well, yes, in part because of disinformation, even within the scientific community. So we have to police ourselves and or someone has to police us too. So Absolutely. I'm not arguing that because there are a lot of, you know, shall we say, scurrilous scientists. And I name a whole bunch of them in this book right here. Absolutely. So I hear that. But the fact of the matter is, until we, you know, deal with hard truths and understand that they are truths, you know, things will only get worse. Yeah, so I get a lot to, um, I'd like to know your answer to this about, um, you know, stevia and all of the other sugars that supposedly have less calories. I'd like to get your version on that. I mean, to uh -huh. me, that's ultimately even more processed, right. like the aspartams. And of course. We, uh, so you know as well as I do. Explanation for this, please. <laughs> right. So you know as well as I do because you're in this field as well. That we now have the data. You know, people asked me that question before, and I said, "Well, we don't know," but actually, now we do know. We have the data. It's it's finally you know come in in the last five years or so. Um, half as bad. Not good. Half as bad. The toxicity of one Coca Cola equals the toxicity of two diet Coca-Colas, right? Now you say to me, how can that be? No fructose, no calories. How can that be? And the answer is because the diet sweetener does two things that also cause problems. Number one, you put something sweet on the tongue. Message goes tongue to brain. Sugar is coming. Brain goes to the pancreas. Sugar is coming release the insulin, but then the sugar never comes because it was a diet sweetener. So what does the body do? It's released all this insulin. It goes and finds extra food to work on. So it's been shown already, diet sweeteners do not cause weight loss. So that's number one. Second uh, problem. Do, do you know if they cause fatty liver disease? They don't seem to cause fatty liver disease that I can tell. Not that, not that I've been able to uh, uh, see. However, 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 diet sweeteners alter the microbiome and the, altering the microbiome can cause leaky gut. Leaky gut can cause um, uh, uh, the, the uh, transportation of uh, uh, cytokines and uh, uh, lipopolysaccharides and whole bacteria into the portal system, which ultimately can cause systemic, uh, hepatic and then systemic inflammation. And so that can cause chronic disease on its own and can actually contribute to fatty liver disease if you're taking in things that ultimately do turn into fat in the liver, like for instance, sugar. Yeah. So it's not that diet sweeteners cause fatty liver disease, but they foment the inflammation that is associated with fatty liver disease. Yeah, and so, pancreatitis, for example. And, pancre and pancreatitis. So the bottom line is diet sweeteners are not the answer. That's what I can say is they are not the answer. Half as bad, but that doesn't make them good. But I think people might have twice as much too. That's right. Because they think, oh, these are free. They won't just have double. They'll sometimes have quadruple, in which case now you've got a bigger problem. So that's exactly right. And then the caffeine plus all of the other additives to right. Absolutely. The caffeine the, activates the reward system just like you know, a regular soda does, and you know, you're off to the races and you can't get off it. So yeah, drinking Diet Coke is not the answer. That is yeah. for sure. 
The other thing that was happening when I was in the early 2000s with children doing sports and everything, what I noticed, and because I was not aware, to be really honest, I was blinded by all of this myself, even though I was studying addiction, was children getting, because I was studying alcohol addiction. So the sugar thing was complete serendipitous finding for, for my lab. But I had sons, uh, a son doing soccer or daughter doing play, sports. And after an hour on the field, they'd get a Gatorade. For example, I shouldn't name that, but a sports drink of some form. And now looking back on that time with the color, the blue bottle, I'm like, I just, these things, you know, <laughs> I think, oh, Lord. So what was I thinking? <laughs> I had no idea, but all, and, but you see this all the time, like rewarding children with sugar for a really small amount of output. Then right. they just a water or an orange would have been far away, far enough for that gotcha. small amount of activity, really, for a child. Totally. Uh, you know, my daughter played soccer and I couldn't believe what some parents would bring. I mean, you know, these kids are five years old. I mean, like, why in the world are they bringing, you know, cupcakes to soccer games? You know, th no, they're not expending that much energy. No, well, they actually need to spend that much energy, no. actually. <laughs> They don't need Capri Suns afterwards, you know, for hydration, you know, it, it's just, it, it's, it's a scam. And, you know, the food industry perpetrated the scam, you know, and Brazil so, and the marketing, wasn't it? Absolutely. So, you know, well, so that's my question to you, Selena, mm -hmm. I've got a question for you today. Yeah. Where is the difference between marketing and propaganda? Well, there isn't really any difference. No, I think there is. I think there's a difference. Well, I think one is going like manipulation in a subtle form, suggestive because our brains are so highly suggestible. Well, they're both manipulation. Yeah. What do you think? I, I don't know the well, exact difference. Wait. Marketing is using information to espouse your point of view. Propaganda is using disinformation to espouse your point of view. The difference is the truth. When companies, politicians, anyone uses information, they're marketing. When they use the truth, they're marketing. Okay, they're trying to use, you know, what's known about their product or what's in the natural world, you know, to convince you of their point of view or their product. Okay, but when you lie, when you use disinformation, that's a very different story. Um, and that's well, the difference. Well, this is a great little philosophical question here because it's also some things are really unintended. There's some things like What's once you have the knowledge, you have to change it. But there's some things you really have no idea about that. It seems like good, that you, something you're doing is good. And, well, then, and then changing that viewpoint to change the marketing is hard. Well, it is hard because people think they know something. Yes. Okay. That's part of that's part of what science is for. Science is to debunk the previous dogma. If everything we knew was true, we wouldn't need science, would we? No, exactly. That's the whole point of science is to debunk last the last generation's dogma. This is what happened during the Middle Ages when no one questioned what was going on. Okay. And so people say, well, you know, what you think today will be wrong 10 years from now. So why research it at all? That's called the pessimistic meta induction theory. And yeah. if that were the case, then, I mean, go look it up. It's on Wikipedia, I swear. Um, uh, if that were the case, then there'd be no point in doing research at all. And, you know, some people would feel that way, you know, and they certainly belong back in the dark ages. The fact of the matter is science is a zigzag. It is not a straight line. Okay. And ultimately, you know, that's why you need the preponderance of the evidence. And that's why you have to do it in a scientifically plausible and defensible fashion. Yes. And ends of one are not science. And this is what we have to teach our children is what is science and how do you do science and get them to you know, use the scientific method 
And and for people out there that don't think they think science is beyond them or they're not scientists, one way to one way to think about this is just to ask questions and be curious. That's what really what science is about is always being curious, staying open minded and always learning and not thinking that this is it forever kind of thing. So that's another way of thinking about an individual. All of us can be scientists every day of our life. In that sense. And there is a and there is a, something called the citizen science movement afoot. Um, uh, I refer your uh, audience to learningplanet.org, the Center for Research and Interdisciplinarity at um, uh, in in Paris. I did a sabbatical there. Um, you know, ultimately, we are all citizen scientists. We just have to put it to use. Yes, and. Um... Like the other thing that um, you know, shocked me, like unintended consequences, because, you know, just like um, something around marketing, like, for example, mindfulness is something that's mm-hmm. really hit the ground. 32,000 articles just in the last, in 2015, for example, in the media reporting only the benefits. But right. I, I've been shocked to learn also <laughs> that there's something called meditation sickness and all of these other things that just aren't reported on. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's the same kind of thing. You're talking about marketing versus propaganda. And, and a lot of it is unintended, but it's so easy to manipulate our brains. Um, this is what Netflix does every minute when we watch it. Uh, it's so easy for human brains to be manipulated in this way. And it's not, and many people are trying to do good, but it can be so easy turned into something bad. Like Absolutely. Facebook's another example of this, isn't it? Without question. So let me tell you about one study that, you know, I carry around with me and I, you know, talk to people like you and, and, and other scientists about. This was a study done by Sam Harris, who's a mm-hmm. blogger, yeah. philosopher, pundit, author, etc. Yeah. And I think this, you know, sort of sums up what the problem is. Um, he took, he's, a, he's, a, he's, by the way, he's a neuroscientist. He's a, uh, an imager, neuroimager yeah. uh, at UCLA. And what he did was he took 15 devout religious Christians and 15 dyed-in-the-wool atheists, and he stuck them in a functional MRI scanner. And he read them messaging that either conformed to or detracted from their belief system, their worldview. When the devout fundamentalist was in the scanner and they heard a message that was, shall we say, conforming to their religious belief, they got a dopamine hit in the nucleus accumbens. When they heard something opposite, nothing. When they took the atheist and they put them in the scanner and they read them an atheistic message, dopamine hit. When they read something, religiously fundamentalist, nothing, okay? And it's sorted completely like that. Ultimately, we seek validation because we are human beings. And it's one of the reasons why we now have these filter bubbles is because we seek validation for our belief system. Now, how that belief system ultimately came to be, you know, what your parents taught you versus what, you know, you learned elsewhere, et cetera. You know, those are all very complex things and I don't even, you know, claim understand or how to get into that. But ultimately we have our belief systems and we now have enough access to, you know, virtually, you know, either side so that we only choose the one side we want to listen to. And that's why some people only watch Fox News and other people only watch MSNBC and because they have their belief system and they do not want it shaken Yes, because it's about the dopamine hit. Yeah. And I have to tell you that I fell for this too. And in 2016, during that election, that was my first ever experience of getting a bubble going in my own social media platform. And I was really quite shocked to see that that happened to me. Obviously, since that, I've changed everything up and try and remain aware that I was creating clickbait bubbles in my own feeds 
that were reinforcing right. my beliefs that Hillary Clinton, for example, was going to win that election. And then waking up on a flight to San Francisco being told, ah, oh, guess what? And really, uh-huh. honestly, honestly, I was shocked. I really believe getting on that flight, it was going to be 95% win uh, to Clinton. Well, this this is so. You know, if you un, if, if if your audience doesn't understand this, what they need to do is Google Cambridge Analytica. Yes, because they showed us how easily manipulable we human beings are. Exactly. And the problem is we have all been manipulated. We've been manipulated by our parents. We've been manipulated by the food industry. We've been manipulated by the tobacco industry. We've been manipulated by politicians. We've been, been manipulated by science. Absolutely. In some so, okay? so how to so, navigate? Yeah, how to navigate this? This, this is too. This is where being a scientist in your own life by asking questions, by remaining open to knowledge and by seeking that is the way to not avoid it completely because it's difficult, but at least allows the awareness to be there, doesn't it? That's right. Never trust anyone. Don't even trust me. (laughs) I tell people. Figure it out for yourself. (laughs) Now that is a great way to finish this podcast, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so let, but let's finish with one last question because i want to finish because i think you're doing amazing work for our for the public health for advocacy i really love your new book metabolical because i've seen so many people beating themselves up over what they're eating not exercising enough that and the way we view people that are obese or overweight is 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 actually diabolical um to be honest with social media platforms and filters etc and and especially for younger people now it's all about image and how you look etc so you know this how you look goes in and out of fashion so let's talk about what you're currently excited about in your life in terms of public health advocacy what are you currently doing um how well, can people find you um oh well, i'm easy to find what your future I'm very is. easy to find uh for, i've got a website robertlustig.com uh metabolical.com you know all those all those things but um I am chief medical officer for four companies, and I'm a paid advisor to four other companies, all about fixing the food supply, all about how to procure, market, sell, consume real food to mitigate chronic disease. And the reason is because if you read Metabolical, you realize that all these diseases that we're dying from, all these diseases that are breaking the medical bank and basically costing you know, a, a fortune, and we, none of them are druggable. None of them have a cure. None of them even have a treatment. We're only treating the symptoms of the disease, not the disease itself. It's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Might help the headache, ain't gonna do a damn thing for the brain tumor. So we've basically mollified ourselves with these medicines, whether it be statins or metformin or antihypoglycemic uh, agents or um, antihypertensive agents, the, the disease is still there. They are not druggable, but they are foodable. Wow, if we fix like the food, if we fix the food, we could solve this problem. So I am trying to fix the food. And I'm trying to fix it through entrepreneurship. I'm trying to fix it through advocacy. I'm trying to fix it through research. I'm trying to fix it through policy. I'm trying to fix it any damn way I can. And I'm excited about all of them because they all do work. Foodable, not druggable. It's foodable, not druggable. So switching from poison to medicine. That's right. Exactly. Wow. I really like that uh, phrase. So that brings me to this thing, Rob, I I just have to talk about this quickly is the nutrition guidelines and the diabetes guidelines (laughs) with the nutrition guidelines. Roll them away. (laughs) Um, And these are, but these people may not be aware, but um, some of these are set by food industry funding. That's right. And and this is one of the most difficult areas we face. 
in Australia Indeed. and probably in not America. just in Australia. I mean, uh, Australia has uh, a major problem because you think down there, down under, yeah. you think that sugar is good for you because it has a low glycemic index. Take glycemic index and sink it to the bottom of the ocean. And while you're at it, sink everybody who uh, portends to be a glycemic index uh, aficionado and sink them with it. So why do you say that? Because glycemic index is not the issue. I can sum up, the glycemic index has two problems, not one, but two. And I'll give it to you real yeah. quick. Carrots. Are carrots good or bad? I would have said good. Raw carrots. But, but they have a high glycemic index. So glycemic index is how high will your blood glucose rise when you eat 50 grams of carbohydrate in a given food? So if you eat 50 grams of carbohydrate and carrots, your blood glucose will go pretty high. So high glycemic index. How many carrots do you have to eat to get 50 grams of carbohydrate? You have to eat 700 grams of carrots. All right? You have to eat the whole supermarket. <laughs> okay? in carrots. Bottom line. The fiber mitigates the glucose rise. So in fact, all food that has its inherent fiber are low glycemic load foods. It's glycemic load that matters, not glycemic index. Right. Well, that's good and to know. All real food is low glycemic load by definition. So that's why... Second eat, problem. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Second please. problem. Fructose. Fructose is bad for you not because it raises the blood glucose, it's, it's fructose. Fructose is bad because it causes fatty liver. And that's not measured in the glycemic index. So sugar is actually low glycemic index. And there are big seals on packages of sugar in Australia say low GI cane, nuts. Total complete BS, can I say? The real thing <laughs> on an Australian podcast. I, it, this is such garbage. All right. But, you know, there are people making money on it. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating, isn't it? So this is when people ask me about, oh, I know someone that lost a lot of weight because they ate fruit. And well, fruit is fine because of the fiber. Exactly. And eating one apple versus squashing up a number to have it in juice is completely different. Exactly right. If, you, if they ate the same amount of apple as, as apple pie, they would not have lost weight. They would have gained weight. Yes. It's not the apple. It's the fiber. Yes. I think that's a great way to finish, Rob. Thank you My for your pleasure. time. That was really, I think we could have talked for hours, um, I, but we can't. So I will refer everyone to your book, your latest book, Metabolical, your website. I'll put that uh, link into the notes of the podcast. And I really look forward to seeing you again, meeting you in person one day now that the pandemic's oh. released itself for, for travel again. No doubt. No doubt. I, I look forward to visiting you in Australia. Yes, so, please I love, do. I love Australia. Yes, I've been there four times. I'm, uh, you know, I, it's it's a wonderful place. You've got, you know, it's 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 Oz. It is. We'd love to have you too. Thank you. Uh, pleasure. <laughs>